Welcome to Sex Ed Before Bed, Dr. Liz Powell. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. And we met several years ago at the University of Guelph Sexuality Conference, which feels like ages ago and was so fun. Whole other lifetime ago. Yeah, yeah. And so I really wanted to chat with you because I like the things that you talk about. I think I'm all about educating myself and trying to educate others. And we just, we need more of you in the world. Thanks. (laughs) So I wanted to kind of just like touch base with you to see like how you're doing right now in the pandemic. And because I know one thing that you talk about on Twitter is you're single and you've been single this year. And so what's, what's that? I'm partnered. I've been with somebody for two years, so it's been different experience for me, but what's it been like for you? Not going to lie. The pandemic has been really hard in a variety of ways. The start of all of the lockdowns and stuff in March, I had a partner and I ended up breaking up with that partner in April because, you know, the stresses of the pandemic brought out stuff in that relationship that just made it something I couldn't say in. And I live alone. And because it had been like a month and a half of pandemic, by the time I was solo, Everyone I knew who was taking COVID fairly seriously had already gotten their bubble that was pretty closed. And so the folks that were available for me to see in person were folks who were maybe not taking COVID as seriously in a way that like I could feel good about interacting with them. So it's been a very isolated year. I'm an extrovert (laughs) and touch is my primary love language. Mm. So it has been a year full of not getting my needs met. And on top of that, I'm a therapist and coach. And, you know, the majority of the time as a therapist, the stuff that your clients are dealing with isn't exactly what you're dealing with right then. Like it might be similar to stuff that you've experienced. There might have similar themes to things that you're going through in your life, but we're all struggling through this pandemic together. And I have to show up and support people who are processing the same trauma that I'm encountering as this pandemic goes on. So it's a lot. Other stuff that happened, I was a part of a social club and workspace for ambitious women and non-binary people that folded shortly after I asked the leadership for some accountability for some stuff that they had done. And I got scapegoated for that. So that was another big loss. Just It has just been a lot. There's just been a lot this year. I recently kind of got to a point of you know what? Fuck it. I do so few COVID risk things. I'm going to just get on a dating app and see if I can meet someone to be like a friend with benefits for a while so that I have some kind of touch and sex in my life because it was getting real rough. Like in the entire month of September, I got one hug. That was the entirety of my physical contact for a month. Aside from with my dog, I adopted a dog in June. So she's my cuddle buddy all the time, but cuddling an animal is not quite the same as getting touched (laughs) from a human. And going an entire month with one hug is really hard. Between the end of April and when I started seeing my new lover about a week and a half ago, I had sex once, which is nothing for me. I'm a very (laughs) slutty person. I tend to have a lot of sex with a lot of people. I think that, you know, of my fairly recent adult life, the longest I had gone without sex prior to this was like a month, maybe two. And being so alone and isolated and carrying so much for my work and all of those things kind of piling on each other, I was in a really dark place mentally. And there's still days where I'm in a really dark place mentally where, you know, there have been multiple days where I have to apologize to my dog because I just keep crying a bunch and she's really worried about me. And I don't want her to be worried because like, I'm going to be okay eventually. But I'm also, it's just hard. It's really hard these days. Oh, yeah. I really think uh, like what you said struck a chord with me because this is so different from other types of trauma in that we can, you could see a patient and say, you know, you're helping them with something that they're going through, but you're not living that at the same time. So you're able to like separate yourself. But here we are really all living in it at the same time for the same amount of time in our own way. So, and I do feel like therapists do carry some of the things that they'd hear with from their patients. And so I think that's a really, a really fair point that you mentioned. And, you know, the closest parallel I have to what the experience is of being a therapist during the 
the pandemic is I was in the army for five years as a psychologist. And so I was deployed to Afghanistan for nine months as a psychologist. And we're all on deployment. I may not be going on the exact same missions they are or dealing with the same coworkers or whatever, but we're all in the same dangerous situation together. The thing about it is when I was deployed, someone did all the cooking for me. I just showed up and there was food. Someone did all my laundry and there was an end date. I knew when I was going home. Wow. (laughs) For COVID, we don't have an end date. And I have to do all my own grocery shopping and all my own cooking and all of the dishes. (laughs) And like I had sex on deployment. I had sex with five different people on deployment. Yeah. You know, like (laughs) (laughs) this is a really hard time. And I think it's harder because there aren't many people who are sharing the realities of what this is for them. I think that there's this fascinating way that like hustle culture has shown up during the pandemic with people writing stuff online about like, if you don't come out of this, haven't finished your book, you wasted COVID. And I'm like, if you come out of COVID, you did a great job. (laughs) If you survived the entire time without murdering anybody, you did great. Like, We have hundreds of thousands of people dying, you know, particularly in the States where we're doing worse than anywhere else in the world. We've lost 300,000 people. We had three of the deadliest days in American history last week. It is unbelievable. And we are doing nothing to acknowledge those deaths in any kind of meaningful way. There is no grief happening on a public scale. There is no public space for this grief and this mourning and this trauma that we're all experiencing. And I think that's part of why we see so many people going deep into this denial state of like, it's not a big deal, it's fine. Because I think, again, especially in the States where leadership has decided to just let people die, we have this belief that like someone in charge would let us know if it was actually a big deal. And if the people in charge aren't treating it like a big deal, it must not be. And like, I hear that all these people are dying, but I don't personally know anyone who died. So why do I have to wear a mask? Mm -hmm. It's awful right now in this country. And so many people are suffering and in so much pain. You know, I see people in my practice who have partners that they are struggling to maintain their relationship with because their relationship was not designed to be together 24-7. The folks I know with kids, it is exhausting to have a kid right now, to be with your kid 24-7 and try to work and try to be a person separate from them. Yeah. There's so much suffering right now and it's not being seen and it's not being acknowledged. And I feel like so many people feel this need to put like a shiny, happy face on it. And that's, I get where that comes from, but I don't want that for me. And I don't want that for anybody else. I want us to be able to acknowledge together that this is exhausting and it's hard and it's scary. And that so many of us were unprepared for this. And so many of us feel abandoned in this by the people who could help us and by friends who make choices that we don't understand in terms of our risk. And I think it's even harder that we don't have that, that like not having that space to be in our struggle publicly and to share that struggle with each other means that so many of us are just struggling alone. There's a lot to unpack there. And I wonder if part of it is, you know, that if people unlock what's going on for them privately, that it will become the denial that you mentioned, that it'll become even more real. It is real. But when they take the veneer down or they're really vulnerable, maybe they feel like they won't be able to put themselves back together. I'm not sure exactly how you read it as a therapist or sure if it's that fear, if it's... Yeah. I mean, that fear that you mentioned is a really common one that like, I can't dive into this because if I dive in, I'll never stop. I can't let myself start crying because yeah. it'll never stop. Yeah. And it feels like that, right? When we're holding these emotions, it's like, if we think of our emotions, like a can of Coca-Cola and it's been tossed in a paint mixer, right? <laughs> we don't want to <laughs> pop that tab because it's going to yes. be really messy. Yes. But until we pop that tab... We're just putting off how long it's going to be before it's messy, right? The paint mixer hasn't stopped. It's not like we're going to have time for that can to like settle down. And even after it settles down, it's not going to be the same as it was before. Yes. It's hard to pop that tab. It's hard to open it up and make space for it. And it's essential. We have to give ourselves some time and space in this to start feeling some of it. Because if we don't, the tsunami of grief and trauma and pain that's going to hit us when it's over 
is insurmountable. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing about balance here is we have to learn how we can create spaces where we get to have those feelings and fall apart and then find tools to pack it back up when we have to do other things. I have a lot of parents who I know or who I see in my practice who are worried about like crying in front of their kids or having their feelings in front of their kids. But our kids know this is not normal. (laughs) Yeah. If they see you crying about it and you share these feelings with them, it gives them an opportunity to share their feelings too. If you're worried about breaking down in front of your partner, they're feeling it too. If you're worried about having to tell your work that you need a day, everyone at your work is feeling it too. And you don't owe that company anything. Like (laughs) that company doesn't care about you (laughs) if they're going to give you an issue for saying you need a day. Yeah. We are facing something that is bringing so many of us to this space where we have to acknowledge our limits, where we have to acknowledge that we are not limitless, that we cannot just overcome anything, where we have to acknowledge that we are frail and fragile and that we can all die anytime. And that is scary. And that is the heart of life. You know, that is what existential philosophy, existential psychotherapy are all about, that we have to face this death. We have to acknowledge it and be present to it and honor it. We have to acknowledge our own fear and our own pain and our own trauma because putting it away doesn't make it go away. It just lets it fester and boil. Mm, I'm wondering, because you have this sort of uh, unique experience of being deployed to Afghanistan for five years. And if you see, do you see any of the behavioral patterns now or that were reflected during that time? And even the fact like that you were deployed there to do that work, I wonder if that even happened, you know, two or three decades ago. I think it speaks to a, a better awareness of things like PTSD. But yeah, going back to the earlier point, what did that work overseas teach you and what did you take away from it? Sure. I, I was deployed for nine months, not five years. I was in the okay. army for five years. Okay. I was only in Afghanistan for nine months. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing of how people are coping with the ongoing trauma of COVID is similar to how folks cope on deployment. So diving into video games, diving into distractions, finding things that you can do to kind of keep yourself very deep on social media so that you aren't being present to your feelings, like finding ways to numb through these other strategies. Also a lot of like alternating between like risky behavior and like very conservative behavior where you know, people will be like very, very on top of everything for a while and then just like go do something completely wildly risky. I think that's really common. Also, I think for like me as a therapist and taking care of myself, when I was deployed, I, again, the difference here is that I was set up for success in a lot more ways because the things that are hard for me, particularly as a person with ADHD, were taken care of over there. I didn't have to worry about my laundry. I didn't have to worry about cooking or cleaning. All I had to worry about was my job. And so I was able to see a lot more clients and do a lot more work. Whereas now, because I have to do all the cleaning myself, except for, I will admit, I have house cleaners that work for a very ethical company that I hire that come in every two weeks to do the like actual cleaning on my house. Because otherwise I would never, you know, I have chronic pain. I have a bulging disc. I have ADHD. Cleaning is one of the few things that I do to like really take care of myself. So I pay people to come and do that every two weeks. But, you know, day-to-day dishes, I have to do it. Grocery shopping, I have to do it. Meal planning, me. Getting myself into a fitness routine, that would have to be me. Like all of these things would have to be me. And I don't have the resources to do that. And so things fall through the cracks. There have been large stretches of this pandemic where I have subsisted largely on cheese and carbs, whether that's quesadillas or mac and cheese or nachos, but (laughs) some sort of cheese and carb has been (laughs) probably the majority of my pandemic meals (laughs) because like it's something that I can eat relatively quickly. That's relatively easy that for the amount of like dishes and effort has a decent taste payoff. So it's not, it doesn't feel like a suck, right? Stuff like my laundry. I've been getting better about it, but there have definitely been times where I'm like, okay, I guess I have to do laundry tomorrow because I don't have underwear anymore. (laughs) That's always the push for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
I've had to find other kinds of supports to get through being a therapist in this situation. Martha Crawford, who's an awesome therapist who's on Twitter, she runs a weekly support group for people who are care providers. And I've joined that. And that's been wonderful because Martha has been really great about encouraging all of us to like take care of ourselves aggressively and acknowledge our own limits and acknowledge that like we are not infinite, that like we all have our limits. I have a therapist who I see every week. I was in a support group through another organization. You know, I've just tried to keep as many of those supports going as possible. And then I joined this dating app and I've found a lover who I've seen twice now. And would I date date this person or be in a significant long-term romantic relationship with them? Probably not. But like for right now, that's not really what I want to try to build because I, I don't know that in this environment and in this time, I could build a foundation for a healthy continued relationship. There's just too much trauma. There's just too much weirdness. There's just too much isolation. I don't know that I could set healthy boundaries and set expectations that I'll feel good about later on. Mm. And like, I'm looking at trying to move to another country because I don't know that the United States is going to be a country that is good for me to live in as a queer, trans, non-monogamous, kinky person who's disabled. Yeah. So I think it's a, a, a mix of, there are some similarities and I'm probably better prepared for this in a lot of ways than people who have never had an experience like deployment. And being deployed in Afghanistan was infinitely easier than doing this during the pandemic. Wow. Well, that speaks volumes. You know, and I really like how you said, take care of ourselves aggressively and being present to our feelings. And that's kind of the irony is that sometimes, you know, I'll speak for myself, like what I'm most afraid of is like what's already inside me, you know, and that's the hard part. And going back to what you said earlier, and I'm I'm going to paraphrase, but it's, you can, one way to measure a society is the way that they treat their dead. And I do, I did want to target what you said about um, how we can have these conversations about grief. And, you know, is it just, is it just simply as, as simple as just saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm having a day or that I'm being more vulnerable with whoever we're around? I think that's part of it. I think, you know, I've had a couple of interesting text conversations recently with folks who reached out and said, how are you doing? And I, I gave them an option. I was like, well, do you want the real answer or do you want the like polished, shiny, nice answer? Yeah. And they would say, oh, I want the real answer. I'm like, it's really fucking hard. I'm alone all the time. I'm really sad. I'm struggling. This is exhausting. I don't know how to do this. And then they like try to fix it for me. They're like, well, what about bubbling with people? And I'm like, you, do you think that I haven't considered the option of getting in someone's bubble <laughs> that I've spent <laughs> the last eight months almost living alone and not in a bubble because I never had the idea to be in someone's <laughs> bubble. Like, really? Oh, come on. <laughs> you know, and, and I think part of this is about all of us understanding the questions we're asking of each other that are usually like mundane pleasantries aren't that anymore. If you ask someone how they're doing, you need to be ready for their real answer. If you can't take their real answer, then maybe you don't ask that. Yeah. I think this also starts with each of us finding people who we can show our vulnerability to, who we can say like, yeah, I'm really struggling today. Like, I don't think I'm going to kill myself, but if I were to somehow die, I wouldn't feel terrible about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, finding ways to share that these are the spaces that we're in, that we're not like, you know, hashtag blessed and making it through this pandemic the best we can. And that like, this is actually really hard and yeah. a lot and too much. And that that's normal. Yeah. And, and there's something that you said in one of your videos about, it was that capitalism sees our value in our productivity. Yes. Yeah. And you said that's bullshit. And I love that. And that really speaks to, you know, for those of us who are, like lucky enough to still be working. And that's something else, you know, <laughs> at least what I'm noticing is there's this mix of mental health, mental health, but then it's like, work's not stopping. You know, everything's at the same pace or accelerated pace. And I definitely get that, but there, it's a challenge. Like there is this expectation that 
you that everyone's doing okay and everybody's fine and everything is just continuing and it's very very busy and there is some kind of missing component um i am starting to see like executives talking about vulnerability and and again like reiterating that this is a difficult year i just i do feel like there's something that's still missing yeah i mean i feel like so much of the corporate world is, this is such a hard year and we really value our employees and they're our family. What do you mean you can't be as productive as you were before a global pandemic where your kids were at home all the time and you're having to school them while also trying to work? Yeah. And that's just disingenuous. Like, I don't think that this is like about something missing. I think that this is about the way that capitalism is about extracting as much value from workers as possible so that those at the top can benefit. And I think that like we need a general strike or something like that to try to change this. I think that the people with power in organizations at the middle levels or higher need to start standing up for the people below them and saying, you cannot expect regular times productivity from folks right now. You know, on a great day, folks right now might be functioning at like a C plus level. (laughs) Yeah. If normally they're an A person. And on a bad day, we're looking at like, D minus F territory. Yeah. And we need to adjust our expectations. We need to adjust our deadlines. We need to adjust the way that we do things so that we're not running these people into the ground. And it's such a tough situation for workers because most folks aren't in a position where they can just quit their job because their job is being shitty to them. Because even if you do, where are you going to find a job that's not? Yeah. You know, I work for myself, which during this time is a blessing and a curse. It means that there's no shitty boss making me do all the stuff that I would have done before. However, I also don't make money unless I work. So, ah? (laughs) (laughs) I still need to pay my rent and I still need to be able to like pay my bills. So, you know, I have to figure out every week when I sit down to do my week planning, how much do I push myself this week? How much do I lean into resting? When do I schedule time off? so that I can recover because I still do have to make money in order to survive in the capitalism that we live in. But I recognize that I need more break. So like, how do I find that? How do I figure out ways to make that work for me? I I don't know the answer yet. I'm still fighting with that answer every week, every day, even I'm fighting with that answer. You know, it's, I think that if you work for someone else, talking with your management about expectation levels, And like, what are the expectation levels and what are they based on? And being honest about like what your situation is and seeing what happens, you know? Yes. Yes. And that takes real courage, especially when you're in a, like a more precarious place where speaking out like that can have real, real risks. But I absolutely agree. And I, when I do hear people doing that or when they, you know, they're going to part-time or they're, you know, they just take a week off of stress leave. I really, really commend them because that's the question. What are the expectations? Are the expectations what was status quo before or are they actually even higher than what was before? Mm -hmm. Because everything that was a priority before has just been pushed back and now there's more priorities. So it's definitely problematic. And I know that, you know, you've logged about taking kind of a year off for yourself. And did you find that that exercise was fruitful? Yeah. I mean, I took like a year where I basically didn't do any conferences or events and where I didn't push super hard on video and I didn't travel a lot for work. It was following a year where I had moved to Portland and I had done a ton of travel that year and I'd done a ton of travel the previous year. And I think in the like nine months that I lived in Portland of that year, I was physically present in my own place for three, three and a half of them. And that was unsustainable for me. And as I looked at applying for conferences, I felt obligation and dread, not excitement. And that signaled to me that this was a time to change things and pull back, to find out something else that I needed to do. I am someone who is, I come from perfectionism. I work at undoing it all the time, but it's there. I come from this tendency to like overbook and overschedule and overcommit myself to try to do all of the things with the hope that it will get me through. And I decided instead to take some time to just really do less and give myself space to 
feel things and to heal and to rest and to recover. You know, the, the year that I didn't do much included a really terrible breakup that devastated me. It was two years. Uh, I had the two year anniversary during that year of my partner who died. There was just a, my cat died that year. Like one of my two cats had to be put to sleep. There was a lot, there was a lot that year. And I needed space to be able to feel things and to not be so focused on doing everything all the time so that I could just be a person and not a worker. One of the things that I've tried to do for a lot of my my work, especially in the last few years, is not work on weekends, to take two days a week where I don't do work, which for anyone who's worked for themselves, you know how hard that can be because you're always at work. You are work. So <laughs> taking time off of work can be really challenging. But I I did things like on my business email address, I set up an autoresponder that has an FAQ and that tells folks that it takes me three to five business days to respond to emails I so that, that and that I don't respond on weekends so that people have an expectation already that they're not going to hear from me right away and they have answers to most of what folks email me about. Yeah. I did things like I would actually like block in my calendar time to like be not working. Or I would set like the block in my calendar of like, this is my work time. At the end of work time, I had to stop working so that I could like relax Mm -hmm. (laughs) and be a person. Um, And it was hard. It was hard. It's still hard. You know, right now I, for most of this year was like just struggling so hard to get through the basics that I have started having like some surge of energy and I'm trying to do new stuff and launch some new stuff. And I'm noticing that I'm super overwhelmed again and I have so much stuff again. And that this means that I need to start looking at how I rebalance again. You know, I'm, I have a, I'm doing a new year's course this year. Uh, It's going to be an email course. And it's a course that's all about really tuning into your body and your joy and your pleasure and your excitement and spending the year really loving on yourself and learning about yourself and caring on yourself rather than like trying to like punish and discipline yourself at the start of the year. And I think it's going to be great. And I'm really excited for it. And the amount of work that goes into creating the program and marketing it and promoting it and getting it up on the website and getting it sold is a lot of stuff. I have an assistant that I work with. I ended up part of the fallout of the like social club that I was a part of that closed down was that my assistant was friends with the leadership. So that assistant ended up quitting. I did a search, found a new assistant I wanted to work with. We were passing contracts back and forth. And then that assistant got a blood clot and has been in the hospital and unable to work for the last month and a half. Oh my God. So I have a temp doing some work for me, but like I haven't had my full-time not full-time, but my like contract regular support in several months (laughs) to help with a lot of these tasks. And so like, I look every day at my calendar. I look every week at my calendar and I'm like, okay, this is getting too much. I need to start pulling back on stuff and figuring out like what I'm pulling back on and what I'm going to focus on. And so like, I blocked myself almost two weeks off around Christmas and New Year's. I... (laughs) can't take it fully off because it's going to be right when the course is launching, but I'm at least not seeing clients and not doing any other work stuff during it. So it's going to just be focused on any last minute support to get the course launched. And then the like starting welcome call for the course, you know? And I think that that's, it's that dance, right? Of like, how do I keep things going so that my business doesn't stall out and I end up without enough money to pay my bills? And how do I create enough space that I'm not just working all of the time and exhausted and worn down. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking about kind of where you are and you're in Portland at Portland and I, and we, it's hard to to talk about Portland without talking about the dedicated protest thing that occurred this year. And I'm, I actually don't know how many days it went on for or how many months consistently it went on for, but it lasted until the air was so toxic that it would kill you (laughs) because of the wildfires. Uh, and so, I mean, so so there's that going on in the background as well. And one thing that that you talk about in one of your videos is how race can kind of play into 
I mean, I guess I'll start there. I'll say, what has it been like for you living in Portland this year with these protests, with the movement that we're seeing? Portland is a fascinating place in terms of racial dynamics because it is easily the whitest place I have ever lived, like by a huge margin. You know, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. I went to undergrad in St. Petersburg, Florida. Then I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. Then I lived in Hawaii. And then I lived in Georgia. And Portland is very, very, very white. Oregon was founded by some folks who really wanted it to be a slave-owning state and were very disappointed when the populace voted against allowing slavery in Oregon. It was for many years a sundown state where if you were black, you could not be in the state after dark or very bad things would happen to you. It is a, a place with deep, deep racism. And what's fascinating about it is that when particularly conservative media talks about the protests that were happening this year in Portland, they paint it as the whole city's on fire. It's so dangerous there. And that's not even close to true. The protests largely happened within about a two block area in downtown Portland. I live like a mile and a half, maybe two miles from where that is. And if I didn't actively follow information about it online, I would have had no idea most of it was happening. Occasionally protests went down my exact street, but other than that, for most of Portland, it was largely business as usual. Maybe bridges got shut down, there were helicopters in the air, there were a couple of rough nights right at the start, but the city was not burning. For right. most of the city, they pretended like it wasn't happening. Yeah. I, because of my disabilities, didn't end up going to the protests personally. But what I did is supported a lot of mutual aid funds. I supported friends who were going. I offered reduced fee, very reduced fee sessions for folks who needed them, who are of more oppressed groups. You know, I provided support in other ways that I could. And it's, it's really a fascinating thing in Portland because now, like right now, there's actually a sit-in, an occupation going on for a house up in North Portland that is a house that's been owned in the same family, the same Black family since I think the 1950s. And they were given an eviction notice during the pandemic when it was illegal, both federally and under state laws to evict folks. And Ted Wheeler only a couple of days ago authorized the police to use any force they wanted to to clear out the people who have camped out around that house to protect the family from getting evicted in the middle of the pandemic in winter when evictions are supposed to be illegal on a national level. Ted Wheeler, who's our mayor in Portland, loves to talk a good game and went to a protest and got tear gassed and was very weepy about it. But like, he's the commissioner of the police and hasn't stopped anything. The Portland police like to escalate things. They love to declare things an illegal gathering so that they can tear gas people and beat them up. When we had federal troops in town, they were driving around unmarked rented vans and just snatching people off the street who were at protests and driving them blindfolded to locations that those people didn't know where they were with no reading of their rights, no information at all. It looked like kidnappings and it was allowed at the federal level. So it's a weird time. Even fairly recently, there was another person who was shot in Vancouver, Washington, which is in the Portland metro area similar issues to all of these police shootings against Black folks that we see. It's a weird time, you know? Everybody is putting up Black Lives Matter signs and, you know, saying that they support the protesters, but there isn't the same kind of movement towards actually making changes. Portland had a ballot measure in the last election to create a community accountability board for the Portland police that would be no police on board. Police don't get to choose who's there. It's community created. It passed and the police have lost their goddamn minds about it because how could anyone who's not in the police possibly tell the police what to do or hold police accountable, right? It's a bizarre system. Having been in the military, police here in the States get to use escalation of force that we would have never been allowed to do in Afghanistan or Iraq. Ever, 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 ever. They escalate so much more quickly and so much more severely than we would ever have been allowed to. And it's fascinating to see. Wow. There's there's so much to unpack there. And I think I think it is 
a year of reckoning for a lot of people. And there's at least there's an element I feel of shame for me in that. Why did it take like this long? And it's not that, you know, again, in Canada, we have this myth, right? Or, or that I had absorbed this myth in part that, yeah, yeah, like it's there, but I think this year has been a, a big reminder. And, and I say that, you know, embarrassed. I'm embarrassed because, you know, I studied immigration for my master's and we talked about racism a lot. And I remember studying at university and, and feeling like those first feelings of like major, what I now recognize was white fragility and whatnot. And so I think what I hear you saying is that maybe people are starting to reckon on an individual level, but it's not it's not happening as quickly as it, it could or should be happening at a systems level, at a systemic level. I think people are reckoning some at an individual level, but I think that the majority of white folks are pro-Black Black Lives Matter, all cops are bastards, until a Black person tells them that their opinion doesn't matter. And then their white fragility kicks in again. I think that right now it is easy to identify with these movements and that a lot of people are identifying with them without having actually done the work to be able to move forward with social justice. It is so much easier to put BLM in your Twitter profile than it is to actually unpack your own white fragility and unpack your own complicity in white supremacy. That we, a lot of white folks, when they come to conversations about racial justice, they want to be seen as good white people. They want to be seen as the right kind of white people. They want to be seen as the kind of white people that folks who are minorities want around. And when they are given anything to the contrary in terms of criticism or being told that they need to take a step back, they react out of that fragility to say, well, but I'm trying to be a good white person. Like, why are you being so mean to me? People, I think, have this very surface level identification and surface level analysis of these issues that makes them feel better, but doesn't actually do anything meaningful. And like, realistically, I'm glad that we're talking about this and the people we should talk to about this and listen to about this aren't white people, <laughs> you know? Kevin Patterson or Marla Renee Stewart or uh, Dirty Lola or, Zach Budd or any of these other people who are amazing sex educator folks who are Black have a very different perspective on this. And we should be asking their perspectives and weighting their perspectives way more than white folks. And we should also be talking to them about shit that isn't just about them being Black, you know? I think that the challenge of these conversations is that like, yes, white people, we need to talk with each other. And I think the number one thing most of us white folks need to do is listen a lot more to people who are Black and have these experiences, to listen to them about what they want, to listen to them about what they think needs to be done, to listen to them about their experiences and believe them, and to take a back seat. Yep. That's 100% fair. One thing that you talk about, first of all, I, I think that what you're saying is really important. And, and you've mentioned that one thing that you do when when thinking about which kind of the conferences that you want to attend is is looking at the panelists and 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 asking you know leveraging your privilege to say what's the deal like why are these all white faces and even pulling back your own participation if you feel that it's not right and it's uh you know interesting i see it in myself where i Yes, as a white person, I feel like I want to come up with solutions and I want to help create a plan. And then it's like, no, it's, you know, it's really not for me to to drive this. So leveraging my privilege, yes, but listening to your point, listening a lot more. Absolutely. And one thing that you talk about in one of your vlogs is how social justice and race play a role in our romantic relationships. And that's a that's in that's something interesting. Do you want to speak speak a little bit more about that? Sure. You know, the thing 
I would say is that the axes of oppression and privilege that exist in culture don't suddenly disappear because we're dating. And the communities in which we date and the people with whom we date, those systems are going to be replicated within there. Kevin Patterson does an amazing job talking about this in his book, Love's Not Colorblind, where he talks specifically about experiences being Black in the polyamory community and like the relationship between the polyamory community and race. But I think a lot of us white folks feel like if we're dating a black person or in a relationship with a black person, then like suddenly we're in and we can't be racist and like we've done the thing. When in fact, a lot of times starting to date someone of a different race is the beginning of your work on figuring your stuff out because all of that internalized white supremacy stuff can come to play in that relationship in a way that harms your partner. And you have to do the work of unpacking and noticing it. I was in a relationship, the longest relationship of my life was my ex-husband and he's black. And I was very young when we met and had not done a lot of the work yet on myself. And as I look back, there's a lot of stuff that I said or did or that I didn't say or do that was 100% about the ways that I was perpetuating the culture of white supremacy. That was completely about my own white fragility or my own desire to be the good white person or the woke white person or the like white person who gets to hang with the crowd. I didn't know and I should have done more work on it. I should have done a lot more work to figure out about how to be a better partner to someone who was not of the same race that I was. I am glad that now I know so I can do that work. And I think different communities are at different places with starting to actually look at and understand this. The polyamory community still sucks at race a lot. It's starting to talk about it. It's starting to work on it in no small part because of folks like Kevin and Lola and Zach and Marla and Ruby, uh, Ruby Bowie Johnson, who runs Poly uh, Dallas Millennium. And it's still very much in an early stage of like exploring its anti-Blackness and its white supremacy. Some other cultures like swinger culture are like not even quite started yet in some of their segments. You know, as many, as few as a year or two ago, there were swinger hotel takeover events that would have a chocolate room where they brought in Black men to have sex with the white women. And it was called the chocolate room and the black men were told they had to have sex with the women. I don't know if they were sex workers or if they were just, you know, men who were maybe getting paid or who were brought in for the opportunity. But that kind of objectification is terrible and awful. There's still a lot of fetishization that happens within these communities. There's still a lot of fetishization in the way that people talk about their dating. I hear a lot of people talk about, oh, I just have a preference for dating people of a certain race. You may have a preference. Your preference is not independent from the culture of racism in which you exist. All of our dating preferences are not some magic thing that showed up one day and that is absolutely unchangeable and it's just how we are. Our dating preferences are the combination of our culture and our experiences and our ideas about what attractiveness is supposed to be. If you're someone who comes from a fat phobic, white supremacist, sexist culture, you're gonna like a very specific kind of person. That may be your preference. That doesn't mean you get to just accept it and never work on it. Yeah. I think that when we see things that are about racial preference and dating, we do best when we take time to look at why is it that I am or am not attracted to certain people? If I notice that I'm not attracted to people who are a certain weight, what is that about? Like, where is that coming from? One of the best things that you can do for yourself if you're noticing stuff about like fat phobia is to go follow a bunch of fat activists and uh, body positivity folks on Instagram because research has shown that exposure to images of different body types actually changes the way that we perceive the attractiveness of bodies very quickly. Since mainstream media shows only one or two kinds of bodies, if we take the, the time to really on Instagram or other platforms look for and expose ourselves to and surround ourselves with images of people of all different shapes and sizes, we start finding more kinds of people attractive. If I only look at people, or if I only look at images of people who are supposed to be attractive that are all white, I'm going to not have as much attractiveness that I notice in people of other races. Hassan Minaj just had a really fantastic interview 
where he talked about uh, Dak Shepard and how attractive he thinks Dak Shepard is and whether he thinks that he's more attractive than Dak Shepard. <laughs> and one of the things he talked about is that to be attractive as an Asian man in our culture, you have to be like Daniel Day Kim ripped. You know, you have to have the like V cut in your abs and be like completely fat free and very, very buff. And then you can be an attractive Asian man in our culture. Whereas Dak Shepard looks like a dude you went to high school with who probably eats Cheetos at midnight. You know, the range of attractiveness we're willing to afford to white bodies is very different than the range of attractiveness we afford to bodies of any other race. So we need to look at like, am I fetishizing? Am I tokenizing? Am I bringing racism? Am I bringing fat phobia? Are these things that are happening in the ways that I look at my dating and attractiveness? Oh, dropping knowledge. I really, really appreciate that take. And I really, I think that research, the research that you've mentioned is really interesting on exposure to image as helping to change our perspective very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might bug you after to see if, if you have the link to it so we can include it in the show notes. But... You know, and I think we are coming to the end. And I mean, this is a very difficult question, but I think certainly in the context of the last year, we've seen so much rhetoric and different opinions on different things. And, you know, I think, so generally I would say the people that I invite onto my show, like we're on the same page. We're sex positive people. We, a lot of them are like experts or they're very, you know, seasoned practitioners or they have a lived experience. But I'm wondering how we start to broach these conversations or how we start to like bring in and find common ground with people who, you know, they're not the the converted way to use a poor, poor term. So one thing that I've learned from one workshop is to just try to find common ground and not try to convert, but to just move the needle. Is there anything that you're, that you found in your own experience that you'd like to share? I think there's a mix of things here. I think it depends upon like where on the spectrum we're talking to folks. So for instance, if we're talking to someone who's a TERF, right, who is absolutely deep in transphobia, what we see with a lot of those kinds of groups is that the belief is so deep and so persistent that you're not going to be able to talk them out of it. And one of the only things that tends to create change for those kinds of almost cult-like groups is losing relationships that they care about. So sometimes the best thing we can do to help someone move on these issues is to let them know that they can't be in our life as long as that is how they are. If it is someone who is like not at that extreme end, but who just like isn't there yet, I think, you know, there's a great tool called motivational interviewing that came out of substance abuse treatment that is a really helpful thing for therapists and coaches to use. And what motivational interviewing looks at is how to connect with folks around change with an understanding that almost all change comes with ambivalence. That when people are considering change, there are things that make them want to stay the same and things that make them want to change. And if we think of that as a tug of war and you approach them tugging on the change side, the side they have left to pull is the stay the same side. So one of the best things we can do is try to get a feeling for where in the like stages of change they are, which uh, the trans theoretical stages of change model is fantastic, strongly recommended to everybody for understanding all kinds of stuff in your life. Someone who is what they would call pre-contemplative or contemplative. So they don't, they either don't know that a change needs to happen or they might be open to a change, but they haven't really decided if they want to change yet. We can provide information in a way that is like non-judgmental and open right? We can get their consent to provide that information first and say like, oh, you know, I heard you just say that like, you don't feel like trans women should be able to use public bathrooms. Can I offer you some information about that and see what they say, right? And offer them information about like, you know, there's actually no significant evidence of any trans people assaulting folks in bathrooms. What we do have evidence of is a lot of significant health and mental health consequences from trans folks being unable to use bathrooms. And we have a lot of evidence of trans people being assaulted in bathrooms, particularly when they're forced to use the bathroom that is of their assigned sex rather than of their gender. And just like allow that to be information, right? For people who are either in like a preparatory stage of change or like moving towards change, what we can offer is an opportunity to explore why they might want to change. 
right? If someone that we're talking to is talking about, well, you know, I've mostly only ever dated really thin people, but I mean, I guess maybe I should consider dating people who aren't so thin. We can explore with them, like, what are their reasons for wanting to change? Our reasons may not resonate with them. Like, I have a very strong social justice position about that, but that may not convince them. Whereas if I ask like, oh, well, can you tell me about like why you're considering that? What would be the benefit of considering dating more people? Well, it would be a less limited dating pool. And I found that a lot of the like the really thin people who I want to date don't find me attractive. So I might actually be able to find someone more easily. Oh, so you'd be able to find more people that would date you. What else makes you want to consider this? I mean, I guess some people have said that like it's not cool to not date people because they're above a certain weight. What do you mean by that? And just let them explain it and let them have their reasoning. Challenge them on stuff that's wrong, but create a space that is about reinforcing their reasons for change rather than your reasons for change. I also think that part of this here also needs to be about like who who you are in relationship to the change we're talking about with them. I am not cisgender. I am non-binary. I am on low-dose testosterone. So I don't argue with transphobes. I don't argue with people who have gentle transphobia because that is not actually my fight to fight. I don't have the power to fight it. It hurts me personally to fight it every time. Every single turf I come across on Twitter, I block them immediately because I don't want them anywhere. If, however, you're someone who's cisgender, who has a relationship with this person of some kind, and you can talk to them about it, you have the same kind of connection and societal power that it takes to be able to have that conversation. Mm. People convincing white people to be less racist, that burden shouldn't fall 100% on Black folks. Yeah. We should listen to their information. We should listen to their education. We should pay them richly for every gift that they give us of their knowledge and experience. Yeah. And they should not be our personal tutors, especially for free. 100%. So I think, again, it's this element of like, who are you to this person? Who are you to this demographic that we're talking about or this like area of social change that we're talking about? How do you position yourself to take care of you and to help them change? Love it. Liz, it has been a joy and a privilege to talk with you. And uh, this has been a very rich interview. And thank you so much. I cannot wait to share this with the world. So thank you so much for your time and for your knowledge. Thank you for having me. 